This is an ABC podcast. Prince Charles seems almost certain to become the next head of the Commonwealth. The Queen has declared it's her sincere wish for her son to take over the non-hereditary role when her reign is over. It is my sincere wish that the Commonwealth will continue to offer stability and continuity for future generations and will decide that one day the Prince of Wales should carry on the important work started by my father in 1949. On the death of Queen Elizabeth, her eldest son immediately became the monarch, King Charles III. But the Queen had also made sure that Charles took over the role of head of the Commonwealth of Nations. Unlike the British Crown, the head of the Commonwealth is not an inherited position. Yet since the Commonwealth came into existence, it has passed from King George to his daughter, Queen Elizabeth, and now to her son, King Charles. Welcome to Rear Vision. I'm Annabel Quince. In this episode, the story of the Commonwealth, its connection with the British Empire and the royal family, and its relevance today. The Commonwealth emerged out of the British Empire at the beginning of the 20th century. Dr Cindy McQuarrie is a Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Sydney. So today there are 56 members of the Commonwealth and I think all but four are former members of the British Empire. The four I'm thinking of are Mozambique, Rwanda and the two newest members of the Commonwealth, Togo and Gabon. And these are all African nations. And how many of these nations actually have the Queen or had the Queen and now have King Charles as the head of state? So there are 15 members of the Commonwealth that are what we call Commonwealth realms. That includes the United Kingdom, plus 14 other nations, which have the British sovereign as head of state and including, of course, Australia as one of those. And so then I'm assuming all the rest are republics. No, 36 are republics, and there are actually five other monarchies in the Commonwealth, Eswatini and Lesotho, which are small kingdoms surrounded by South Africa. There's Tonga in the Pacific, there's Malaysia and Brunei. So just to take that colonial past for a moment, I'm just wondering if you can, I guess, remind us just the extent of British colonial rule at its height at the sort of the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Just how economically and military powerful was that empire and just how much of the, the globe did it cover? So it was enormous. It was the largest empire, I think, that the world's ever seen although it's not the case that, as the saying in the 19th century went, that, you know, the sun never sets on the British Empire. That's not true. But I think what is true is that large parts of the earth, so if we think of, for example, the continent of Africa, large parts of sub-Saharan Africa were part of the British Empire. Large parts of Southeast Asia were part of the British Empire. Really, with the exception of the Americas, where Britain really didn't have, by the 20th, 19th and 20th century, much of a formal empire at all, if any. And of course, I suppose the continent of Europe. But otherwise, Australasia, Oceania, the Pacific, Africa, Asia, was under either direct or indirect control of Britain. So it was an enormously large and powerful empire. And it was also one that, of course, made a great deal of money for Britain. And much of that money came from trade. And in the 17th and 18th century, a significant percentage of that trade involved slavery. Scholars have shown that 
slavery and the slave trade were extremely important to British wealth and power in the 18th century, well into the 19th century. Priya Sethia, the Raymond A. Spruance Professor of International History and Professor of History at Stanford University. And what's the name of your latest book? Time's Monster, History, Conscience and Britain's Empire. And if you look at even the elite today in Britain, you can trace lines back to those who were slaveholders or benefited or who were paid compensation when they ceased to be slaveholders in the early 19th century. So whether you talk about industrialization, the plantation economies that the British developed in the Caribbean, the sugar plantations, the production of raw cotton that went into the cotton industry in Britain, and that production of that raw cotton depended again on plantation economy, you know, slave labor, all of the kind of dramatic economic transformations that we associate with Britain in the 18th and 19th century are very much tied up with slavery and the slave trade. Even after Britain abolishes slavery within the British Empire in 1833, there's continued dependence on various forms of forced labor and on slave labor in areas outside of the British Empire. So it's a very long history of dependence on forced labor and, and that being very central to the economic transformations and economic power that Britain acquires in the 18th, 19th and all the way through the 20th centuries. The slave trade was enormous, and you're right to point to that. And we need to be clear that the British control of the slave trade was so powerful and important because of the British control of shipping. So Britain was not just a slave trader, but they were a maritime power with enormous commercial shipping as well as navy. But I just want to be a little bit careful here. When you're talking about the 17th and 18th centuries, many of the slave traders are trading with not the British Empire, but with areas that are under company rule. So for example, India. India doesn't become a British crown colony until 1858. Prior to that, large parts of India are under the control of a chartered trading company, the East India Company. And there are other trading companies like the Virginia Company, for example. So a lot of the slave trade is with these chartered trading companies, but British ships also bring slaves, particularly from West Africa, to colonies such as in North America, the American colonies, which are acting and those slave traders are acting, if you will, independently of the British government. So Britain is absolutely involved in the slave trade. It dominates the shipping. But I think we need to be a bit careful about assuming that there's one British empire that's running this, if that makes sense. A lot of this is what we'd understand today as big corporations. When the slave trade was abolished in the British Empire in 1833, it's those corporations and individual slave owners who were compensated. The Slave Abolition Act provided £20 million, or around £17 billion in today's money, to compensate slave owners. Correct, yes, because this was understood as loss of their personal private property, because they're losing slaves who were understood as property. And so the government, I can't remember the figure in today's money, but it's an enormous amount of money that actually was only finally paid off by British taxpayers recently, and I think by 2015. British taxpayers have continued to pay off this enormous sum that was paid out to compensate slave owners. And that was the price of freedom for Black people. And yes, it's an interesting counterfactual to wonder how would history have turned out, say, in the Caribbean, if former slaves had instead been compensated. 
Yes, but there was also, Annabelle, provision made, I must add inadequate provision, but there was provision made for former slaves. So, for example, in places like Jamaica, they were given some land. The idea was that they would become small-scale farmers. Now, in practice, the land that they were given was neither suitable nor big enough to really make to be economic, and most of them ended up working as paid laborers for their former slave masters. So in fact, their position changed very little. They were not empowered really very much by the fact that they were no longer slaves. But yes, no, there was some provision made for, for those people, but, it, but I would also add that it was wholly inadequate. Within the empire, there was a two-tiered system of colonisation. Sitting at the top were the white settler colonies, like Australia, New Zealand, Canada and South Africa. In that period, from the 1830s, you see a divergence in the way that primarily white colonies, in which indigenous populations had been displaced and eliminated for the most part, and primarily non-white colonies were treated in the British Empire. In the 1830s, there's a major Canadian rebellion against British rule. And the way the British address that, because they don't want to lose control over Canada as they have lost control of the, you know, the colonies that made up the U.S. by that time. They make some concessions and they create the system of responsible self-government within Canada so that Britain is going to remain in charge of Canada's foreign relations and finances and military affairs, but internally Canada is going to have self-rule. But right in those same decades in India, you see the opposite happening. And also in in Jamaica, for instance, you see rebellions that happen and imposition of greater British governmental control over those colonies. India becomes a crown colony in that period rather than a colony ruled by the East India Company. Jamaica had actually started to have some local legislative independence and it reverts to being a crown colony after a rebellion there in 1865. So you start to see a divergence along racial lines between colonies that are primarily white and those that are primarily non-white. And then when the anti-colonial movements in those non-white colonies become really powerful as you get into the 20th century, what they're demanding is to be put on the same path of responsible self-government that they see Canada and New Zealand and Australia have been put on. You're listening to Rear Vision. I'm Annabel Quince. In this episode, we're tracing the story of the Commonwealth of Nations, its connection with the British Empire and its relevance in the 21st century. It was out of this British colonial legacy that the Commonwealth emerged, at the very moment the British Empire itself began to decline. In the late 19th century, I guess the antecedents of Commonwealth start when you start to have imperial meetings of colonial prime ministers who meet often in London and talk about issues of common concerns, in particular what they're worried about the late 19th century was defence. And those meetings are in many ways foreground the later meetings of Commonwealth heads of government, but they are meetings between the leaders, as you've said, of former white settler colonies, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa, although South Africa's complex, but but it can be called a white settler colony to an extent. 
But the next big push is following World War II when Britain starts to more formally divest itself of its empire and you have the independence of crown colonies, places like India, for example. And it's the demands of this new group of decolonizing nations who have their own agendas and desires for an independent future, and in the case of many of them, to become republics. But interestingly, with India, we have a test case where India is the first nation to say on independence, while they wish to become a republic, they also wish to remain in the Commonwealth. And that's that's actually a really important moment. And in 1949, you have the London Declaration, which I think in many ways we can point to as the origin of the modern Commonwealth. Because with the London Declaration, the existing members of the Commonwealth, which up to this point are really just former settler colonies like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, they agree to allow India to remain in the Commonwealth while becoming a republic. And that sets the path that subsequent nations have followed, i.e. they remain within the Commonwealth, but they become republics and no longer have the British sovereign as their head of state. The Commonwealth had emerged in 1931 precisely for this purpose. It was a way of trying to maintain in substance Britain's ties with these dominions like Canada and so on, while at least formally acknowledging their greater independence. So throughout this period of the history of the British Empire, you see the British trying different ways to kind of hold on in substance, keep the substance of the colonial relationship in place by appeasing certain demands for reform or making certain technical and formal changes. And so it's never clear when empire actually ends. So when these anti-colonial movements become really serious and it's impossible for the British to ignore them by the 1940s and especially after World War II, again, they pin their hopes on the, the fact that there is this commonwealth and they don't know how politically and economically significant Commonwealth ties might be. Their hope is that these are going to be powerful ties, economic and political ties that are going to help them maintain in substance the advantages that they accrued from having control over a place like India, while at the same time kind of conceding India's formal independence. Well, I think there are several things that the Commonwealth does for Britain. At the end of World War II, it's clear that places like India are are no longer wishing to be part of, of the British Empire, and it's clear that Britain has to respect their wish for independence. But it's also clear that for the British government, for the British monarchy, but also I think for the British people, there's a desire to maintain what are seen as good relations with what soon comes to be called this family, this family of nations. And so there's the idea that although Britain and, say, India are parting, that they want to remain in good terms. There's also, I think, a very important strategic reason why the Commonwealth is important to Britain in this period. And that's, of course, because that with the onset of the Cold War, with the rise of superpowers like the Soviet Union and the USA, for small former empires like Britain, they want to be seen to have other friends and to not become simply, you know, the pawn of the US or the Soviet Union. So I think it's important for Britain that it maintains good relations with its former empire. I think there's also an important point here about sentiment. I think that for the monarch, who of course George VI had been emperor of India before India departs, it's, uh, if you like, a bit of a consolation prize to become head of the Commonwealth. And then I think for the British people, there's a great sense of interest in the Commonwealth and a determination to at least feel that, you know, Britain still has some role to play on the world stage, even if it's no longer as an imperial power. What about the former colonial nations like India? Why did they want to become part of the Commonwealth? 
Well, again, some of those factors apply to them as well. In the Cold War, there was concern among many nations that they didn't want to choose between, you know, the US and and the Soviet Union. Although I would add that countries like India do, in fact, engage with the Soviet Union to an extent. I think there's a sense that as small, newly independent nations, there's something to be gained from having an association with other nations which have similar backgrounds and economies. And I think for many as well, there is still a sense of, if not protection, at least familiarity with Britain. And that for some, although by no means all nations, there is some sense to continuing to recognize the British sovereign as their head of state. Throughout this memorable day, I have been aware all the time that my peoples spread far and wide throughout every continent and ocean in the world were united to support me in the task to which I have now been dedicated with such solemnity. Many thousands of you came to London from all parts of the Commonwealth and Empire to join in the ceremony. How important do you think the Queen was, especially in those first 30, 40 years, in terms of trying to create what the Commonwealth was? Well, I think in a time of decolonization, the fact that so many key moments in the Queen's life happened while she was on tour in one or another Commonwealth country, like she receives the news, you know, of her father's passing when she's in Kenya in 1952. And that kind of backdrop or that stage for her career as a monarch, I think, creates this illusion or maybe even the reality that Britain is still a kind of imperial power and that its monarchs still have this kind of global stage on which they can parade and pose in their regalia and and there's a sort of blurring between the Commonwealth nations that are republics and do not recognize the queen as their head of state, but recognize her as the head of the Commonwealth and the minority of countries that are members of the Commonwealth and also take the queen as their head of state. The scale of nation that Britain is on its own or the United Kingdom is even on its own, it doesn't justify the scale of the pomp, right, and ritual of the British monarchy. It really is something that evolved against the backdrop of this always expanding empire. So I guess I do think the Commonwealth is very important to the Queen. She recognized that she needed the scale of that stage to maintain the prestige of the monarchy politically, even within the United Kingdom. So what is the purpose of the modern Commonwealth? And has that purpose changed over time? I think its purpose has definitely evolved over time. It's been able to respond to the various challenges that member states have been confronted with. My name is Vijay Krishnarayan, the former Director General of the Commonwealth Foundation, which is the Commonwealth Agency for Civil Society. People will often speak about the role of the Commonwealth in isolating the apartheid regime in South Africa. That was a defining moment for the Commonwealth, where it was able to mobilise both governments, non-governmental organisations, cultural activists, a whole range of people, 
and institutions and agencies behind this need to isolate racist apartheid regime in South Africa at the time. Over time, of course, other challenges have presented themselves and the Commonwealth has responded accordingly. So, for example, I think at the moment, climate change is top of the agenda for many member states. More than 30 of the uh, Commonwealth member states are small states, small island states, many of whom are in the Pacific. You know, the Commonwealth provides a valuable forum for those member states to come together and discuss how they might meet the challenge of climate change before they go into other forums. I don't think anyone's suggesting that the Commonwealth can replace other international forums where important discussions take place. But it's very much uh, kind of an instrument, a place, a space that member states, Commonwealth countries can come together and discuss some of the difficult issues and find consensus and apply that consensus in other forums, whether that be the Conference of the Parties, uh, climate change discussions, or any other forum where formal decisions are taken. Apartheid, yes, I think that is a moment when not just the Commonwealth, but interestingly enough, the Queen really defied the policy of Margaret Thatcher's government and stood up for the people of South Africa. But I think that's something that's probably somewhat unique. I would say that the Commonwealth has not necessarily achieved its potential. And I think if you're looking for a kind of clear-cut policy objectives that the Commonwealth has reached, you're hard-pressed to find those. I think that's one of the criticisms and the valid criticisms of the modern Commonwealth. But I do think that the fact that the Commonwealth has not just maintained its membership, but increased its membership, and as we've seen this year, is welcoming members that have no historical relationship with the British Empire at all, suggests that it is useful for those small states. And I think one of the things to keep in mind is that if you look at the Commonwealth nations, that they have a lot in common. In other words, that there's a large number of small states, there's a large number of island states. The population of many Commonwealth states is particularly young, it's a very youthful demographic. And this gives the Commonwealth, I suppose, a sense of cohesion, but it also gives small states an ability to, to meet and to discuss issues that are important to them. And we could contrast it with this institution like the United Nations, which, while of course hugely important and global, is so much larger. You know, there's not really going to be a lot of leverage for Commonwealth nations there. And so too with NATO, which of course is geared towards Europe and the US and Canada. The Commonwealth offers those small nations a sort of a platform. But I would also add that there's not a clear sense of the distinct achievements of the Commonwealth to date. In the past 20 years, a more critical view of the British colonial period has emerged, focusing on racism and slavery. What implications does this re-evaluation have for the Commonwealth? Anti-colonial conversations that had to be somewhat curtailed or limited during the Cold War and the War on Terror, which sort of rebooted or extended the life of some of the arguments that justified European colonialism. Some of those anti-colonial arguments have become loud once again, and you do see the effect of that politically in conversations in some Commonwealth countries, for instance, in Barbados last year, where you know it was decided to remove the Queen as head of state and make Barbados a republic. And now in Jamaica, there's a similar conversation so yes, you do see the impact of those 
more critical understandings of the empire. They've always been there. There's nothing new in this critical approach to empire. It's the fact that it's finally become loud enough within the academy to no longer be ignored or marginalized in the way it once was. I don't think you can deny that the Commonwealth has emerged out of a, a British colonial past. But I think we have to distinguish between Britain's role in colonialism and the Commonwealth's role in addressing the issues left by this legacy of colonialism. You can't essentially put the blame on the Commonwealth for any of the wrongs associated with empire and colonialism. So I think that is important. I do think that the Commonwealth has an important role to play in helping individual countries to address the legacy of colonialism. It's a valuable institution to be used for that discussion, if you like. It can provide an arena where the difficult issues around the legacy of colonialism can be discussed in the round. It's much easier to have that discussion amongst 56 member states than it is to have individual discussions with between Britain and each one of those 55 member states. Look, this is a big debate at the moment, Annabelle. There have certainly been a lot of calls for the Commonwealth to step up and, and address this issue of the legacy of colonialism, the issue of slavery, the issue of reparations, for example. And certainly I think those calls are going to grow louder. But I think this is complex because I think that we have to remember what the Commonwealth is. And I think we need to remind ourselves that the Commonwealth is a, is a voluntary group of member states, that each state is considered to be equal. But how the Commonwealth would, I think the Commonwealth can certainly engage in discussion and the, the Commonwealth could be a useful platform for discussing this. But I do think as a historian that we need to also look beyond the Commonwealth and look at key states like Britain, or Australia for that matter, or Canada, rather than just looking at the Commonwealth per se. Because I think I'm just not quite sure that what the capacity of the Commonwealth is to really, other than to discuss these issues, I'm not sure what the capacity is to bring about meaningful change, given the nature and the, the makeup of the Commonwealth and how it works. I do think that the Commonwealth of Nations that we have today has not diverged so much from its origins in the British Empire that we can no longer recognize it as a kind of offspring of that empire. Yes, there are significant differences. There is not an exact mapping of the British Empire to today's Commonwealth. But it is just a simple fact of history that the Commonwealth emerged as a structure framing the British Empire in the 1920s and 1930s, that it was really important to the process of decolonization, that its existence helped defer or keep incomplete that process of decolonization. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. Even in the late Queen's kind of conception of the Commonwealth, before she became Queen, she described it as an imperial family. And she at no point sort of disavowed that understanding of the Commonwealth. So I think it's fair to say, in her conception of it at least, and her personal wish that her son take up the leadership of the Commonwealth after her, even though it's not a hereditary position, there was a great deal of continuity and a desire for continuity in what the Commonwealth is today with what it was, you know, say in the 1940s. 
That's not to say you couldn't have a very dramatically different commonwealth today that will shed all of those marks and kind of be a decolonized version of a kind of association of independent nations. And that might be a really great thing to have in the world. But I don't think that's what the current commonwealth is. I think we're going to see the commonwealth continue and become bigger. Whether it becomes stronger, I think, depends on how well it manages to bring all its members together and whether it really can bring members to unite in support of particular policies, you know, around, for example, climate change or around democracy and human rights. So I think that's the big question. I think there's enormous potential, but there are also some large questions. Dr. Sydney McCreary, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Sydney. My other guests, Professor Priya Satya, author of Time's Monster, History, Conscience and the British Empire, and Vijay Krishnarayan, former Director General of the Commonwealth Foundation. The sound engineer is Simon Branthwaite. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.